0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. All the better for seeing you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, listeners, I want to apologize for, for not having some recent episodes and recording as regularly this summer as, as, or spring, I guess, as we would like. We've both had some travel and various things, but we're going to hope to get back on a regular recording schedule. Right. Uh, there's been uh, some headlines in recent years about whether the United States is becoming a gerontology—that is to say, a rule by uh, people of, of advanced age. Gerontocracy. Gerontocracy. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> Forgetfulness is not a product of old age, but it's sometimes of youth. Um, and people point to the fact that President Joe Biden is now—he's eighty. Uh, Mitch McConnell is eighty-one. Dianne Feinstein, I think, is eighty-nine um, et cetera, et cetera, something like 25% of Congress is over the age of 70, um, and whether this is a, uh, something to worry about or not, and, and I think we've seen media coverage suggest both that this is a problem and also that it's not a problem, um, and this is an issue that's come up in some of the recent presidential announcements, including Nikki Haley, uh, who was one of the Republicans running for, for president, uh, who who said in her announcement, America's not past our prime, it's just that our politicians are past theirs. So we thought we would discuss um, all these issues, both in the contemporary context and in their uh, historical antecedents, as best we can.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we saw Ron DeSantis... Um announce for president, well, attempt to announce for president on Twitter the other day. Yeah. And the fact he did it on Twitter is quite telling. Uh, one of the things that DeSantis is, is quite clearly trying to do, and I think he's only 44 years old at the yes. moment, uh, was to distinct, distinguish himself both from President Trump, uh, former President Trump, who, of course, is 76, and current President Biden, uh, and and uh, present a, a more youthful appearance. And I think that DeSantis was was. Is both deliberately doing that, and also a lot of his messaging is seeking to do that. And he's got a young family. I mean, mm. he, he is considerably younger than um, than both of his likely rivals, and he's even younger than Nikki Haley, who I think is fifty one. That is. Um, So so, DeSantis was clearly positioning himself as as the the youth candidate, in the same way that Barack Obama did when he ran, and you know, fifteen years ago, and and uh, Bill Clinton before him. I mean, if you're in your forties, you make that an asset.
0: To be sure. Um, so, I mean, how, how do we um, make sense of, of this sort of aging? Obviously, we've, we've had older politicians going back, you know, since the beginning of the Republic. Benjamin Franklin was not a young man when he was at the Constitutional Convention. He was also not obviously all that healthy a man when he was at the Constitutional Convention. We've had a variety of politicians uh, through the years that have been uh, you know, in more advanced age. Is what we're going on was what going on now different than that or not?
1: Yes, <laughs> now now okay. How is how is I, it? Different? I I think people are living longer now than they have in the past. Um, American life expectancy has has increased dramatically in the past two hundred years, certainly in the past hundred and fifty years. Um, life expectancy across the the developed countries has increased across the world, frankly, hmm. uh, but especially in the developing countries. So we have more older people around and we have more older politicians around there have always been old politicians mm. as you know mm. um but but i think the proportion of them um has increased and i think that has consequences i mean we have seen recently lots of news reports you, you sort of you mm. were very polite about it in your uh, in your in your intro david but there were a lot of news reporting in the past week or so about diane feinstein's health mm. Now, Diane Feinstein is not necessarily unhealthy because of her age, which is 89, uh, but she appears to be unhealthy. She yes. appears to be in very poor health at the moment, and much of that might be age-related. Now, there are other people in their 80s who are quite active and—, and, and Fitter and,
0: than either of us uh, are.
1: Yeah, uh, and Joe Biden appears to be quite fit, for example. Mm. Uh, but but Diane Feinstein's age is certainly mm. a factor. Mitch mcconnell seems to be in poor health these days we've seen Mm -hmm. less of him uh there's no doubt that people in their 80s are probably uh, as a rule less Mm -hmm. healthy than people in their 40s or 50s and so you know it's it's it it is a factor but we have a rapidly aging population in the united states but again across the developed world um and and that's going to have implications so so In 2018, there were 52 million Americans over the age of 65. By 2060, there'll be 95 million. So on one hand, as a democracy, you say, well, as the population ages, we should have a government that looks like the people of Mm. the United States. Uh, And that might be a good thing. On the other hand, there are consequences Mm. uh, that have to be considered, uh, particularly whether people are able um, to do the jobs. uh, Yeah. In which, in this case, we're talking about politicians, but it's not only about politicians. I th- I think this is a broader issue of of uh, what we mean by aging and what aging means and what the consequences of an aging population mean, but also the problem of ageism, mm. which is to say, discriminating against people yeah. because of their age. So it's okay like,
0: there's a lot going yeah, yeah. on here. Well, I think one of the things about the uh, two things I think we should we, we should we should think of. one is, is is the baby boom generation. I think is is a big part of this in terms of, of a demographic of people who are aging and, and and aging in a very particular way this is obviously a generation who at one point said don't trust anyone over the age of 30 and, and and you know had you know we're all very excited about Beatles songs and said will you still need me and still you feed me when I'm 64 and now they're all in there you know well over that age um you know but I think also the idea of what one can do in um, 170s and 180s is, is, and beyond is very different now than, it, than it was at one point thinking about, you know, action stars in movies who are in their seventies and eighties. You know, Harrison Ford is coming back as Indiana Jones as, know he's like 80, I think. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger has a new Netflix show out where he's an action star and he's in his you know, mid seventies. Uh, you mentioned Martha Stewart is on the, the, the cover of, uh. The Sports Illustrated spring suit, uh, swimsuit issue, which is a interesting choice on their part and on her part, but uh, yeah, it says 80, something about what, you know, age and, and beauty and, and what these standards mean. So,
1: so on one hand, the culture is saying, you know, age, nobody... Whenever people say age doesn't matter that that that's not true age of course age matters uh or it's just a number however we're, we're expanding the boundaries mm. and all those examples are, are good ones of, of what it means to age on the other hand all those choices are also nostalgic on the part of you know you know those, those are mm. you know they're not picking some random person to be in an action film to play Indiana Jones at age 81 they're picking Harrison Ford. Mm. And they de-aged him in the film a little bit mm. so that we can all go back to 1981 when the first the film came, came out. out. Sure. Um, and so there, there's a kind of tapping a vein of nostalgia in the culture with these examples. I mean, I, I was struck because Willie Nelson recently turned 90 and had a big con- concert in, in, in the Hollywood Bowl, I think. Um, Willie Nelson still seems to be active, still recording, still touring. He seems to be in much better shape than Diane Feinstein and they're effectively the same age. She's yeah, 89, he's 90. People age in different ways. Of yeah. course. So so it really does come down to individuals. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, we're rightly kind of expanding, um, uh, or we're thinking more creatively about aging and, mm-hmm. and what it means to be old. But on the other, there is the reality. A, a very eminent historian and good friend of mine once said to me, who, who is now retired, mm-hmm. he said, the, <laughs> said it with a laugh, but there's a lot of wisdom in this, Actually, retirement's not so. But he said retirement's not so bad. Frank, he said it's actually pretty great. He said, apart from the declining health and dying, it's pretty great. <laughs> and 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 you know, we'll never get out of this world alive, as Hank Williams once mm-hmm. sang. And and, um, and and that's true for all of us. That's mm. the one universal truth. And and. Um, that lies at the end of this road for everybody and older people in most cases are closer to that point than younger people mm. are. It's just a to fact. Be sure. and, and, and and how we as a culture deal with that, especially as we age. age. Mm. So it, by, by 2035, older Americans will outnumber children in America for the yes. first time in American history. Which is an
0: interesting demographic shift.
1: Yeah, it's a huge demographic shift. Uh, there are social and cultural consequences of that, Oh, the practical economic ones, for Huge example. Nuances. We're all, you know, that's going to be me, and it's soon going to be you. We're going to need <laughs> care, David. Yes, I
0: understand. <laughs> yes.
1: There are going to be fewer young people to care for us. Uh, and, and, and so there, there are kind of practical dimensions to this, but it's it's very, it, I, I just think the, the implications of this, uh, we're, we're just beginning to grapple with them. I'm interested, however. I, we need to talk about ageism as, as a thing. But, but before we get there... The, to talk about politics a little bit mm. more. So the Constitution stipulates that members of the House of Representatives need to be 25. Uh, senators must be at least 30. And to run to be President of the United States, you must be at least 35. So there are age requirements, there are age minimums mm. in the Constitution for those roles. There are no age minimums for the Supreme Court, interestingly. But... Mm. Um, should those apl- apply, should they be there in your view? I mean, they're not gonna, we're not going to change them, but just for the sake of this discussion, should they be there? And should there be age limits?
0: I'll say a few things about that because I, I, I have thoughts on, on that because I think it's an interesting moment when the Constitution is drafted in as much as office holding, often in the late 18th century, had a lot of strings attached to it for qualifications. Right, Age was one of them. Gender was another one. Race was another one. Property holding was often one. So they often would say, you, look, you need to be this age and have this amount of property, right? And what we've done in the 200 years since then is we've gotten rid of all the rest of those bits and pieces. We've, we've said, actually, men and women can hold these positions. People of various racial backgrounds can hold these positions. People who have property and no property, although that doesn't seem very common anymore, if you look at the Senate or Congress right now, um, you know, you people, there are no property qualifications anymore. All of those things have been done away with. Except for this age one, which is sort of, because it's written into the Constitution, sort of an artifact. Um, you know, I don't think there's any particular um, benefit for somebody being 35 to be president as a rule. Now, I mean, I'm not sure there's that many 25 year olds who would end up becoming president but I don't think that that's in and of, there's not a particular you know button of wisdom that you get when you turn 35 that you don't have when you're 34 and a half um, John Adams actually addresses this in, in 1776 when he's having a rhetorical discussion with somebody, he says uh, what reason should there be for excluding a man of 20 years, 11 months and 27 days old from the vote when you admit one who is 21 when they're having these debates about, about what voting qualifications are. And, you know, in, in, in uh, one of the interesting things about, I think, early early Republic is actually lots of people don't know how old they are. There's some interesting scholarship uh, by Corinne Field and other people who, who point out that you know, there are no birth certificates, that lots of Americans in, in the colonial period throughout the 19th century have a vague idea of how old they are. But if you were to say, you know, tell me what day and year you were born, they don't actually know the answer to those things.
1: Yeah, we're not clear on Alexander Hamilton of all people. people, Right.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, so, and and he obviously has an interesting childhood, uh, but, you know, and for enslaved people, they don't know their birth date or year of birth. For, For lots of Americans, you know, they have a vague idea of, oh, I am a young man, I'm a, you know, Mature man, I'm an elderly man, but they don't, you know, if you say, are you 67 or 68, they don't know. And so interesting that you have this sort of paradox in the Constitution where you say, look, we need to have minimum ages, but people often don't actually know what their age is. So I think that's interesting. An but interesting we do know terms.
1: people's ages today. So you, you Okay. So, so I want to know, do we need minimums? And more interestingly and yeah. more importantly, I think, do we need maximums? Unless, um, worried about the minimums, I'd make the minimums the voting age, which is okay. 18. I think that's. Fine. Uh, I, I'm i not sure I'd lower the voting age. I, I take issue with
0: Adams there. I mean, you, you have to draw the line somewhere. I, I'd actually lower the voting age myself. but so what? I'd lower it to 16. Well, they've done that in Scotland. Yes. And, and the country hasn't fallen apart yet. Or at least it's not fallen apart because of that. Frank, sure.
1: I, I, I think 18 is the appropriate age for, for people to
0: vote. Um, as for maximum age, I don't think there should be one. Um, in as much as, um, you know, people age in different ways. And for some people, uh, you know, um, age-related illnesses make it hard for them to do their work when they're 60. And for some people it, you know, they're a hundred and they're just as sharp as, uh, any person who is much younger than they are. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, I don't think having the, the, you know, you mentioned the, this, this question, you know, this, you said this earlier in the conversation that you said age is not a number. And I think there's lots of different ways of thinking about aging that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily quantified as a number. Um, You know, that that what makes somebody no longer fit for serving, uh, you know, may not necessarily be, um, you know, the year they were born, how many years have passed since then.
1: Yeah, let me... uh,
0: What do you uh, think? Let me push
1: back at Ed. (laughs) There's kind of irony in this whole conversation because I'm older than you. Yes, <laughs> and significantly. You should so. retire, Frank. You are <laughs> done. should retire. I am done. Um, I, I I take your point about you know that that somebody could be um, incapacitated by the consequence mm. of age at sixty mm. and not at eighty. I understand that. Um, I think, for example, that based on and this is based on having met neither man, but having observed them both rather closely in recent times. I think, for example, that Joe Biden might be in better shape mentally than Donald Trump. Um, And I suspect that the age difference between the two of them, which is four or five years, isn't that great uh, Mm. in in kind of medical terms. Uh, So I I, I absolutely take your point. Mm. And I could even be persuaded that we don't need age limits for elective office because the United States is a democracy and people can choose and they can factor that in when they make their choices. I would push back a little bit when it comes to Supreme Court justices, however,
0: Hmm.
1: who have life tenure currently, which means their mental state or physical state Hmm. uh, is not... I mean, they can be impeached, but we know we've talked about this many times. It doesn't happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and, and so there is no check and, and, yeah. you know, Ruth Bin Ruth Bader Ginsburg served too long and there are other examples. So I, I think I would have, mm-hmm. I, I would consider, I am open to age limits for the Supreme Court and frankly, I'm open for age limits for, for other high office. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I don't think, and this isn't a partisan comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it applies to Dianne Feinstein as well as, you know, Strom Thurmond when he was a hundred and was yeah. unable to do his job. I don't think we you know, there are a lot of people in their high eighties mm-hmm. now in the in the Senate, and I don't think that's necessarily a good
0: thing. Well, I mean, one thing that's different about the court, obviously, versus people who are in in, in elected office, is that the voters get to decide periodically whether right. to return, you know, Joe Biden or any of the other people we've talked about to office, whereas the court doesn't have that kind of mechanism right. in place. So I think. That would be an argument for having a, a set term of office in the Supreme Court where you can, I don't know, that you know, uh, much more so, I think, than an age-related one. Um, you know, uh, one of the things I think is interesting is sort of how we define when somebody is...
1: No, but the, the, yeah. back up, back up. Yeah. I, w- I want l- to I wanna come back to you a little bit about oh, this because okay. I think I do favor age limits. Okay. What's the, what's the solution if somebody is not able to do their job?
0: Hmm.
1: You know what what is the solution to the, the Diane Feinstein, Feinstein problem,
0: problem. right? Uh, so I think there there are a a, a couple of of, of solutions, um, you know, for not necessarily for well for different categories of people. So thinking about well, let's imagine it's a, a a president. There's a twenty-fifth amendment solution to that, where 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 they, they, they if they are unable to fulfill the duties of office and, and uh, then then they can be removed by their cabinet. So there's an option there for for the presidency. You know, for somebody who is in uh, Congress, um, there are a couple of solutions depending on what state you're in. You can be recalled. Uh, that's possible in some states and not in others. Um, you can be removed by other members of the Senate right, or, or Congress. They get to determine the, the qualifications of their own membership. Uh, and so that they can remove people from office that way if they are unable to perform their duties. Um, and obviously voters can make you know, make that choice when they're up for re-election. Um,
1: okay, you've cited me the rules, David. Yes. But in practice, these things are not applied in most cases. Well, they're not well. It, 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 okay, it only, the Senate isn't going to start removing members because they think they're too old because no, the other senators no, are too, too old.
0: old. <laughs> well, well, here's the I me. Mean, I think it it's we're in a very interesting moment right now because you know obviously the Senate has a, as a, is split the way that it is, and so every vote counts in a way that in most circumstances it doesn't, right? Um, you know, in in under normal circumstances where there isn't a 50-50 Senate. You know, oftentimes when there are seats that are empty for a period of time where there's nobody doing the job because there's a, you know, 60-40 Senate. And so if you have a 58-40 Senate, it doesn't matter, right? I think it's very particulars of this moment where is Dianne Feinstein showing up for these particular votes and therefore things are passing or not passing, people being, you know... Uh, approved for offices uh, you know confirmed by the Senate or, or not those kinds of situations but that's very particular to, to a, a divided senate you know um when when strom Thurmond was a hundred and was you know not able to to fully perform all the duties that one would hope he would you know, there's lots of problems with strom Thurmond, but you know i would say like that's up to voters if they want to send him back uh you know that that was up to them um I mean, I guess the question is, is you know, do you trust the voters or not to, to choose who they want to represent them? And as two things are happening, one is, is you know, the voting population, the American population as a whole is aging. And part of that's the baby boom. Uh, and they are living longer. Do baby boomers deserve to be represented in Congress and obviously elderly are, you know older voters vote at a much higher rate than younger voters, and so they are overrepresented in the voting populace. Um, do you want to tell them that they cannot be represented by somebody who looks like them?
1: No, but I would have...
0: I think 80 is an appropriate age
1: limit. Okay. And and there are a lot of people... Uh, yes, there are people over 80 who mm. can hold office. We know that. I'm sure there, there are. Mm. I, I believe that. But I think... I think just as—and similarly, I'm quite sure there are people younger than 35 who would make excellent senators. No, to be sure. <laughs> uh, so so I, I would have—my age range would—or would, 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 uh, sorry, my the kind of age limits I would have would range from the age of 18 to 80. And I think that encompasses most of the American population. Not everybody mm. doesn't encompass people under 18. Uh, just as under 18s are represented— um, by people who aren't their age, so too people over eighty would be in the same circumstance. That 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 would be those would be the okay. So you would say it at, at, at eighteen 80.
0: to eighty. I mean, one of the questions I think is interesting is about when, what age people become seen as being elderly or seen as being old, and and you know I think the introduction of of, of you, know, uh, you know. the the Harrison Ford phenomenon or the Martha Stewart phenomenon, or whatever you want to call that, of, of people, <laughs> you know, what are people uh, taking on roles that were traditionally y- younger adult roles in, into uh, more advanced ages? Um, you know, I think there's some interesting moments about when, you know, 65 has started to become a particular age that, that was seen as by Americans as, as when um, senior citizenship begins or, or old age begins. Uh, and the ways in which sort of policy decisions have made that, that happen, especially in the 20th century. I think that's an interesting um, framework, right? Thinking about when does Social Security kicked in, when does Medicare kick in, um, and do the ages that make sense when those programs were begun in the 1930s and 1960s, do those make sense now? Because I think we're living in a very different world than when those programs were created.
1: We are, but uh, here's where I'm going to possibly go the other way. So, yeah, I mean, the the 65 retirement age mm. is a kind of direct consequence of the Social Security Act of
0: 1935.
1: Right. Um, and when that was adopted, life expectancy in the United States in, in 1930 was 58 years. Now, of course, that's brought down by child mortality. Mm. So, so there are lots of people who living beyond 58 mm. in 1935, But but that's the... That's the area we're in mm. now today, for example, and, and um, it's taken a dip because of um, because of COVID and its its aftermath. But where you know life expectancy is in, is in the high seventies for the in the United States. So so the life expectancy is certainly extended since um, since 1935 when the Social Security Act mm. was adopted, and that was basically a kind of accountants calculation in the sense that they thought well this is what we can afford mm. given the number of people above 65 in the United States today and projecting forward this is what we can afford well far more people live above 65 now mm. uh as a proportion of the population than did when social the social security was created in 1935 having said that i think 65 is good i think mm. 65 is 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 uh, you know i think if we think of retirement or old age as the third age, the third mm. stage of life, I think you actually with extended life expectancy, I think we want people to enjoy, if possible, mm. um a nice period of life at the or a nice period as their lives draw to a to a close mm. when they can enjoy themselves and enjoy the benefits yeah. of their work. What we're finding, of course, is far higher proportions of older Americans are working, okay, okay. are in the workforce uh, in their 70s uh, in many cases. Mm. And so, um, you know, what I'm describing is an ideal, but for many people, it's not an economic reality. To be sure. Um, so I, I, at the moment, I've got the figure here somewhere. Um, as of 2018, and it's probably gone down since COVID, but 24% mm. of men. Uh, over the age of sixty-five were working, and sixty percent of women. And as I say, I'm, I suspect uh, those figures might have been affected by COVID. But you know, that's a quarter of men are mm. still working, uh, almost a quarter um, uh, over the age of sixty-five, and uh, slightly smaller proportion of women. Um, so that's a significant, but yeah. they make up a significant proportion of the workforce.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing about thinking about and and obviously France has had riots about this recently about changing their retirement age you know is that what it means to work at 65 or over 65 is going to be very dependent upon what kind of work you've been doing for the past 50 years of your life you know if you are a 65 year old construction worker or factory worker you know your body's taking a toll and your ability to do that kind of labor when you're 65 70 75 this can be very different than us, right? right. Our our ability to to babble at, at you know twenty year old undergraduates about the market revolution or whatever is 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 not going to you know decline significantly uh, depending on age and not in, at least not in the same way, um, you know. And obviously, the nature of the the work economy generally has changed phenomenally over the over the you know eighty years or you know, uh, since since Social Security started to become. Uh, you know, a big part of of the retirement economy. Of course, I
1: think those people over sixty five who are in work are mm. not necessarily doing the jobs they did for their main careers. I mean, doing, sure. they could be doing
0: different things. You know, a lot of them are working in retail, for example. Be, yes. uh. I mean, one of the things that happens to about age in the twentieth century, I think this is very much shaping our, our the discussion about, about about politicians who are all born in the mid twentieth century, is that the discourse over what old age looks like it has changed there's been a sort of a medicalization uh, of old age in a way uh, that that would have been very strange in the 19th century an idea of trying to postpone aging as long as you can or to minimize the effects of aging um, that there is a, a question that 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 age and people who are above a certain age are uh, both a, a medical problem and a policy problem to be solved has um, been something that really has defined the, the 20th century, and so Social Security is part of that. Um, you know, in, in, in 1940s, you have the birth of geriatrics. I found this uh, Life magazine article from 1940 that was about hospitals for, for, for older patients. And it has to define what geriatrics is to, to, to the readers. And it says, geriatrics, the opposite of pediatrics... <laughs> Is a branch of medicine whose importance is growing with the increase in the U.S. old age population, um, and then you know I think you start so you're starting to see sort of a specialization of uh, medicine, but all other kinds of institutions, you know, retirement communities and what have to develop in response to to this aging American population, and to think about that it as a a problem, you know, when 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 LBJ. Uh, Signs the the uh, the the Medicare uh, system, you know he he goes and he travels to to Missouri to go see Harry Truman, who at that point was eighty one years old, which in in nineteen sixty five terms was 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 uh, you know quite elderly, uh, at least in terms of political age. And he says that look, we have started to solve the problem of old age, and he used that you know phrasing of the problem of old age, um, and I think that's an interesting sort of Shift that didn't that kind of language you don't see that, um, in, in the 19th century, uh, which I think is, is fascinating about how old age has been treated in different different kinds of ways. Um, I'm surprised we have not yet brought up the Reagan quote from
1: 1984 about Mondale. I'm not about gonna we, hold yes, it yes.
0: against him, yes. I'm not gonna make age an issue in this campaign because I think you know, there was, this current particular mom, moment we're in, I think, starts with that. Um, claimed by Reagan, who was 73 at the time, so he's a lot younger than, than many of the people we were talking about then, but there were lots of issues that were made about Reagan's age in both in his first and and in the second term. and when he makes that joke, um, which Mondale laughed at, right, and I think, you know, because it was a funny it's, joke. It's, it's, pretty it's pretty funny, 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 funny joke. It's, it's pretty funny. For, for those of you who are not familiar with the, the joke, he, he what Reagan said was, uh, I will not make... Age and issue of the campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Wait, and Frank's laughing now. It's my bad funny. delivery. It's of pretty it, funny. It, it's funny, right? Um, you know, and I think if you look at sort of the, the when that shift happens for 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 the sort of political leadership class becoming older and older, and, and I think people who have done demographic studies of Congress have pointed this out. You know, it is in the past 30 years that there's been a real shift towards. Um, Older people holding a, a disproportionate or at least a different proportion of political power.
1: As the electorate has gotten older. Let's not forget though, Reagan was affected it seems pretty clear by dementia mm. by the end of his second term. Yes. That he was younger than mm. most of the people we're talking, talking about. Now. Sure.
0: Uh but he was older than, you know, um, you know, for many government jobs there is a not only a you know there is a maximum Retirement age, for instance, like at the State Department, I think their maximum for foreign service employees is sixty-five. You know, and so there are uh, you know concerns that that people are being pushed out of, of of careers when you know. I think, and I think the evidence supports this. You know, people who are in their sixties are able to do a lot more, whether that's action movies or what have you, than 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 maybe people used to think that were possible. Um, so, David, yes.
1: um, aging isn't the same thing as ageism.
0: Mm,
1: yes. Uh, the the population of the United States and the population of Britain for that matter, the population of the developed world is aging. There's yes. no doubt about it. Uh people you know, the, the median median ages are rising, life expectancy is rising, etc. Though that's a that's a mm. fact. Yeah. It's a demographic fact. Um, notwithstanding the impact of things like COVID. Um, but ageism hmm. is um is slightly different. So so talking about aging and the fact that the population is aging is one thing. Hmm. What's the difference? What what is ageism?
0: Well, I think we should talk about the origin of that term because there's a fascinating uh, origin. That the the term ageism uh, was first coined in 1968 by uh, Dr. Robert Butler. Um, he was a psychologist and he was working uh, in in D.C. Uh, on a public housing uh, project for elderly uh, people but mostly elderly African Americans and the local community objected to this housing complex that was being built uh and and Butler in in an interview said look part of this is about race and part of this is about ageism and he sort of he's linking ageism there with with racism and he's doing this of course right in the in the aftermath of the civil rights movement and thinking about you know, different categories of people in society who, who are discriminated against. Uh, the interview, intriguingly, uh, uh, I, I was tickled by this when I found it, was done by uh, Carl Bernstein, uh, famously of, of Woodward and Bernstein fame, but this is before the Woodward and Bernstein days, so when he's a very, he, a very young cub reporter at the Washington Post, um, and he's now a very elderly uh, reporter at the Washington Post. So, you know, it... Uh, Old is new again. Um,
1: so so ageism is discrimination on the basis of age?
0: I think that's a very... Is that a g- acceptable? Yes, sure.
1: And, and when, when Butler coined the phrase, mm. um, it was originally applied to elderly mm. people. But uh, within a few years, of course, 1968 is a time of youth rebellion and so on. Um, within a few years, it was also being applied to... Uh, discrimination on the basis of age against young people, so the assertion that young people couldn't do certain mm. things, and so so it's been applied uh, at both ends of the democ- uh, of the age spectrum, mm. I guess is the way to think about it. Uh, is it ageist to question whether Diane Feinstein is capable of doing her job, or Joe Biden, or Donald Trump? David's looking very thoughtful. Yes, way. I'm sorry. That <laughs>
0: silent, silent thought is not good for podcasts. Yes, I apologize. <laughs> this is no oral medium, You're David. Became, I appreciate that. So I'm going to try to think out
1: loud, but I, I want to be. This is evidence that we're not scripted. No, clearly not. Uh, Listeners, because or... this is something we talked about a yeah, little bit before. I, and on and, the I, air. and
0: I and I and I don't honestly I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. I think. You know, I think ageism is a is a is a real problem. I think that 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 especially in the context in which, you know, Butler was coining the term in, in nineteen sixty eight, there were you know widespread examples of ageism. You know, people being forced to leave their jobs at ages that that were or you know you know thinking about like, uh, I guess what they called you know, flight attendants. Uh, well, I guess that was the term in the sixties. You know, women being forced to retire when they were 35 because they were seen as being too old or not being interviewed for jobs because they were at a certain age. Um, you know, and, and the age manifests itself in, in a variety of different ways, depending on one's place in society, class, gender uh, and, and what ha- race, what have you. Um, you know, but as the specific question is, is it a, a question to ask about about a, a politician's age and their Fitness to serve. Um, I think if you ask the question about is this person healthy enough to serve, I think that's a icky question, but a probably a legitimate one. Um, Why is it icky? It's a perfectly reasonable question. Well, I don't. I I think in terms of of of, you know people's health status, it, it can be very private. Um, I don't think we necessarily uh, need it's to treat
1: public office though, David.
0: Yes, but but we, you know, the question then is 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 you know what's the, the limit of of that? I mean, okay, if, if the person has, you know is the president, and has very specific responsibilities, okay, there's questions there. But you know, once you get, do you want to you know want a medical report from the person who's running for school board? Right. Um, and be able to interrogate their health on. it. I, I don't think that's necessarily good for the body politic to have that kind of level of, of, of interrogation of people's private lives for serving in public office. Um, you know, and that... Um,
1: well, is it having age limits, though, a way to... So, so I, I recognize, and, and what we've been talking about is, of course, one of the consequences mm-hmm. of... To, you know, a, a, uh, pegging social security to an age, for example, mm. is one of the, one of the uh, intentions behind that was to not make it means tested, mm. right? to avoid means testing um, and, and to just say this applies to everybody. Yeah. But one of the consequences of that is we start we associate aging with ill health. Mm. And although age and ill health often go hand in hand, they don't always go hand in hand. Sure. And one of the consequences of so so my solution of having age limits mm. helps us get around that because you just say I'm you know sorry I mean some people over eighty are perfectly fine and perfectly healthy enough to do jobs but you know that's the way it's going to be we avoid those kind of conversations if you're not going to have limits you you have to now I I, I think I think there's a difference between being on the school board and being on the Senate serving in the United States Senate and being on the Senate Judiciary Committee. There are tens of thousands of people who serve on school boards across the United States. There are only 100 U.S. senators. Yes. And they wield a huge amount of power over not just the lives of people in the United States, but globally. Mm. Because of their ability, because of the responsibilities that come with that job. Although most of them don't seem to take those responsibilities terribly seriously. Uh, You know, so, so not all offices are the same. Okay. Not all offices bear the same yeah, responsibility. But I, think, uh, I think the you'd... level of scrutiny is different depending on, in the same way that you'd say, yeah, well, we do need to know about the health of the President of the United mm-hmm. States. You don't necessarily need to know the health of your local counselor. Okay. I think that's right.
0: Um, I think that becomes a bit slippery slope potentially, though. Um, <sighs> yeah, but, David, the consequences, the consequences are huge. Are huge.
1: I, 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 well, I mean, Diane Feinstein is, does not appear to be able to do her job at the moment.
0: Um, that appears to be the case from the perspective that we have. Yes. That's right. Um, and, and that her health seems to be a large part of that. Um, but that's not necessarily there, you know, there, there are lots of people who are in Congress who are much younger than she is, uh, who also have health issues that may make their ability to do their, their job. Um, you know, um. So is it just not a valid question? I mean, I, 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 think there are, I think the the health question is is a, is a valid question, but I think it's an icky one. Uh, I don't think age is, is the right way to do it. Um, I don't. I. That's that that that's that, that, you know that's a personal feeling more than, more than anything else. Um, But I think it's an intriguing question. I think people are gonna are gonna have to wrestle with because I think the and it will become more pronounced as the as, population it, ages. It will, um, you know. The, this thinking about what the future of old age looks like is, is an intriguing question, Be, in as much as 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 you point out, the population as a whole is aging. That's going to create all kinds of care responsibility shifts and the health of various kinds of safety nets that exist in the United States and in other countries for people. Uh, who are elderly are built upon certain demographic models that don't exist anymore. Um, You know, social security can't keep running the way that it is and we all know that. In fact, most people of my generation don't expect social security to be around when we retire um, in a way that, say like my parents' generation knew their entire lives that they would have social security waiting for them. I, you know, hope it's going to be there. I hope that the money I've paid into the system is going to be there, you know, when I retire. But I don't expect it will. Um, but you know, well, you've been paying
1: in here for a while.
0: Too. I've been paying in here for. <laughs> and I don't expect that's going to be here. But they've raised the state pension age. Yeah. So um, th- th- those are, I think, interesting questions that are, you know, these questions about how do you deal with an aging population are going to be very profound uh, questions for for society to to deal with uh, in the. Decades to come.
1: One of the interesting things is to me about all of this is um, this problem is not unique to, the, or this, mm. it's not a problem. This development is not unique to the United States. Um, one sees it across a number of countries, particularly in, in, in the, the developed world. Mm. Yet, these are the same countries where immigration is such a hot-button issue Mm -hmm. and is fueling populist backlashes against immigration. We're seeing this here in the United Kingdom. We certainly see it in the United States. A clear solution to the challenges posed by an aging population is immigration. Yes. Because... The United States does not, you know, its population will be shrinking by the end of the century because the deaths will outnumber births. Mm. And a solution to the economic and labor problems and social challenges posed by an ancient population can be solved in part by immigration. Yeah. Yet there's a real reluctance, especially on the part, not exclusively, but especially on the part of many mm. older people in a lot of countries where immigration is such a hot button issue. Mm. Um, to embrace immigration when it's the obvious solution to the problem, or it is, it is, it is an obvious solution yeah. to the problem.
0: Well, another phenomenon I think that going, we're going to see more of, and, and, and we haven't seen it very much yet, but I think we're going to see more of it, are people entering politics at a more advanced age. All right. That we think about the politicians we've been talking about today, the, the Joe Biden, the Mitch McConnells, the Diane Feinsteins. The, they're all lifers. They're people who have been in Congress... Longer than I've been alive, right? Like they've been, you know, involved in the political process in in very for a very, very long time. I think we're going to see start to see people who are not that of that um, sort of variety of politicians, people who actually don't start their political lives until much, much later because they're representing that particular demographic. So, something you can do in your third age, exactly, potentially.
1: Which is back to the 18th century model, no. which is you did something else and then you served the public.
0: Like, yeah. Do you know who the oldest person to start their uh, career in Congress? No, I don't. Uh, it's Alexander Hamilton Houston. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. My, my, it's, no, it's me. Andrew Jackson Houston. My apologies to <laughs> My handwriting notes are bad Um, The son of Sam Houston The Texas um, Revolution guy He was born in 1854 He lives until 1941 He runs for governor of Texas three times uh, Loses all three times He's a rough rider in the Spanish-American War He gets selected to fill senate seat In 1941 At the age of 87 And serves for three months
1: Did he die in office? Yes, he died died in
0: office. office. (laughs) And there are complicated political reasons why he got appointed, mostly because the the guy who was the governor who appointed him to be the senator really wanted to be the senator, and he didn't want to have an incumbent to run against, so he appoints a very old guy. Yeah, but so I just thought that was a fascinating case of you know we have you say lots of of very elderly political you know political leaders Strom Thurmond. uh, Robert Byrd and all these people we've got today, uh, but uh, Andrew Jackson Houston uh, starting his, polit- his his life in the Senate at age eighty seven, I thought was just fascinating. So is Thurman the oldest
1: serving senator? Yes, at, he was a hundred. Uh, he was a hundred, but he died. Yes, um, but we've got quite a few now that are in their eighties. That is right, uh, and and I, what I don't know, and you, you might have you might know this, David. So so. Uh, well, I'm going to throw this actually, but if you oh, don't, forgive me. Do we have more senators serving in their eighties today than at any other time in the past, or is is
0: uh, I think that's right. I think that is the case. Yes, and we have a a, a higher proportion. And I mean, there's lots of younger people in Congress too. Sure. but but Congress as a whole is is older now than it has been. At, um, basically, I think any point in its history within you know it's in the past thirty years you've really seen this demographic shift in the age of. Of the, the in Congress,
1: and of course, the Senate rewards seniority. I mean, yes. you get more power the longer you serve.
0: Yes, and and the House does too in other ways. That you know, the longer you serve, the more sort of power and gravitas and authority you have in those in those institutions. So there is a an advantage for sticking around for your constituents. There's a reason why you might want to reelect an eighty year old because they are happen to bring home the bacon, as it were.
1: Right. Although there is more turnover in the House. Um, to be sure. Because the terms are shorter and yes. it's just more churn. Um, they, they all want to become senators
0: when they get actually Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't have to go on the stump as often. Um, all right, time for last drop, Trunk. What you got? Well, David, I have a personal announcement. A personal yeah, so announcement. So you are big-
1: retiring. I'm <laughs> going to go into old age now. I know. I've announced. I've uh, created a committee to explore presidential <laughs> run. <laughs> um, no. And I've lost the American Association for Retirement. As a result of this podcast. Um, no, no, You're no. Going to no, go I've, for the youth vote. That's, I'm, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm done with the kids, yes. David. You know. Um, so, no, I, uh, from July, I'm going to spend a year, uh, mainly based in the United States, uh, directing the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello, uh, which is an exciting opportunity. I'm, I'm still going to, uh, I will be there on secondment. I'm not giving up my job at the University of Edinburgh. I'm not giving up uh, my life in Edinburgh, where we're sitting right now, but uh, it's an exciting new opportunity. And uh um so I just wanted to let you and the listeners know about that it shouldn't affect the podcast I don't yes. think uh, although we'll probably be recording more remotely although I'm assured by um, several listeners notably my wife Mimi that our sound is much better when we record They're remotely so yes. we have that to look forward to very
0: very exciting stuff what about you David uh, well I wanted time? to to endorse a, a book that I've, I've just started but but I'm really and, I'm, and I'm enjoying uh it's by by Jill Titus it's called Gettysburg 1963. Uh, And so it's about the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, but trying to put it into the context of of the civil rights movement and 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 in, in the Cold War, uh, and looking at really from the perspective of you know what does it look like from this small town of Gettysburg that happens to be the site of this very important battlefield and and how all that uh, plays out. And I'm reading this in part because I'm headed to Gettysburg in a couple of weeks to to do the Civil War Institute there, and uh, Jill Tys teaches at Gettysburg College, and so I thought it would be a good preparatory reading before that that trip to pennsylvania
1: so david what do you think of gettysburg as a town
0: i think it's fascinating as a town if you've been like i have, have been, been like i have been yeah um i think it's a you know it, it's it's kind of like civil war disneyland um you know um i think it's fun to visit i'm not 100 sure i want to live there because i think that might be much all the time uh but but it's a, yeah it's, it's definitely a fun place to go uh and you know see the battlefield and uh See, you know, see friends at the college and uh, see the Eisenhower house where my son works for a summer.
1: OK, I've got a follow up question yes. for you, which is uh, maybe favorite is the wrong word. But what is what do you think is the best Civil War battlefield to visit? Oh, wow. Um, and you can interpret best. Yes. In the way ba- you ba- like.
0: ba-
1: I know you're not a sort no, of. No, no. Gettysburg is probably more fanboy. No, no,
0: well, I mean, it depends on what you want out of the experience of going to a battlefield um you know I think gettysburg is is probably the best uh in terms of getting the you know if you want to see lots of monuments the 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 uh, museum at Gettysburg is is very very good um they do a really good job of interpreting the site there um there's some really great tour guides at Gettysburg um you know and and it, it's a you know if you really want to sort of have a civil war weekend that's a good place to do it and obviously if you're in Gettysburg, you can go close nearby to it. You know, Antietam's not that far away. Harper's Ferry, which is the site of a, a very important Civil War battle, sort of in eighteen sixty two, um, I think, is a great place to visit because I think it's very pretty. Uh, and so, I you know, our Harper's Ferry is, is usually thought of more for um, you know John Brown's raid and what have you a few years before the war. Uh, but uh, but Harper's Ferry is really really fun, to, nice to visit too, and you can. Do, you know, if you're in that kind of neck of the woods, you can do multiple places at once. So
1: Yeah, they're, they're all close together. Yeah, they tend yeah, to
0: all be close together. So you can, you can every, every five feet another battlefield. Great.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. All right. Cheers, cheers,
0: David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International. For North America at the University of Edinburgh The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Pod, And like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes